scripture reading from this morning is from the 15th chapter of Luke. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, Listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your commands. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But he had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and has been found. The Gospel of the Lord. Thank you, Kelly. You may be seated. Grace and peace to you all this morning. At the beginning of the season of Lent, we say in our worship service that we are taking these 40 days to struggle against sin, death, and the devil. We don't actually talk about sin all that often here at Mount Olivet. We rightfully prefer to center ourselves in God's grace. But it's Lent, and denying sin's power doesn't mean that it goes away. And anyways, we get this story of a father with two sons, 
And in this story, even though the word sin never appears, what Jesus is doing is challenging our prevailing assumptions of what sin is and how it operates and what God does in response. See, I'm guessing that if we had to locate where exactly sin is in this story, most of us would zoom in to two words, dissolute living. Sunday school curricula and storybooks for children struggle with what illustration to put on this page. How explicit do you get with the kids here? I remember how my church handled this as a kid. The coloring sheet cleverly solved the conundrum. The younger son stood outside a building. In the building, you could see people singing and dancing, glasses in their hands, tables piled with expensive food, and little music notes wafted out in every direction. Would he go in? The illustration seemed to suggest that sin means doing something specific that is wrong. And I think that's how we think about sin most of the time. Sin as something that is engaging in a certain type of behavior or making a certain choice. This illustration suggested that sin then was something that you could avoid. Simply refrain from going inside that building with the music, and you'd be okay. But chalk this story up to a cautionary tale about the dangers of partying or sex and holding up abstinence and temperance as virtues. And we've missed what Jesus is doing here. What Jesus is doing is nudging us into a different understanding of what sin is. Think about that illustration from my Sunday school class, a son standing outside a building. In the windows, there's dancing and singing, glasses in hands, tables piled with food, music wafting out. That picture could be the picture of dissolute living, or it could be a picture of the final scene of this parable that Jesus tells us. Jesus ends this story literally with my picture from Sunday school, a son standing outside a feast with so many of the things that have landed on the Christian no-no list throughout history. Dancing, extravagant food, flashy clothing and jewelry, wine, presumably, a general feeling of cutting loose. But Jesus is trying to tell us to simply avoid certain behaviors. He's kind of undermining himself here. But it's not specific behaviors that Jesus is condemning as sin What Jesus is going after is the spirit in which we behave. What our actions accomplish between us. 
let me be clear before moving on. I'm not saying you should all go out and embrace a party lifestyle. I'm just saying that this parable isn't actually a folktale about morality and the need for clean living. If only it were that easy that we could just avoid sin by not behaving in certain ways. But Jesus had a human heart. And so Jesus knows what it's like to live the lives we lead. He knows that we operate with mixed motivations at all times. He knows how we carry unexamined hurts that get into the driver's seat in our brains. He knows how we can hide our true intentions from ourselves. Jesus knows the murkiness of our day-to-day -day existence and how sin can sneak in even to the good things in our life, things that connect us to others and make those things something that separate us. Do you see that in this parable? Do you see someone trying to get a life, trying to gain life for themselves, but ending up cutting themselves off. The younger son does it right at the beginning. Rather than live out his days in relationship to his family, he chooses to get his inheritance while his father is still living. He's effectively telling his dad, you're dead to me. This desire for money and control and unchecked independent living cuts him off from the relationships that have shaped him into the person he is. Ah, so money's bad, we say. That's what Jesus is going after. Not so fast. Remember, this is Jesus, not Santa. This isn't about a good and bad list. This is about how we use anything that comes our way to separate ourselves from one another, to stand apart, to isolate, to categorize, to assign value. And to prove this point, Jesus includes another you're dead to me moment in this parable, only this time it's with something that's explicitly good, a system of morals, a way of right living. See, when the younger son returns, the father says he was dead and is now alive again, but his brother will not accept it. This man's mind is governed by this beautiful system of morals, this way of wanting the world to make sense, where people are rewarded or punished for their actions, where people get what they deserve. If you're running a farm, supervising a lot of employees, that way of thinking might suit you well. But where it will fail you is when it comes to love. Because look at where this son is. He would rather be right with a dead brother than wrong with a living one. This good system of morals and living has become his prison. He is a captive to his own belief. 
So this parable is not about the sin of wanting money or the sin of celebration or the sin of having too strict of morals. This parable is about how we use anything to separate ourselves, to see ourselves as more than or less than other people around us. See, God gives us good gifts. Everything in this life comes from God. And God gives us these gifts so that we might know life in community. That is how God has wired us. So God gives us these gifts to connect and deepen our relationship. But what sin does is take something that God puts in this world to connect us together and uses it to tear us apart. It turns a good gift into a weapon. And we see that in this story. Money, celebration and revelry, systems of morals, these are good things. But sin worms its way into them until they become the very things that separate this family from themselves. This is the hardest teaching from this parable. Though we may want sin to live off in its own land of a no-no list, sin is in fact everywhere. It's in the good stuff too. It's inescapable. And I'm not saying this to shame you and make you feel bad about yourselves. I'm saying it because it's the warning we get in this parable. Our job isn't to try to stay on the good side. Because look, we have two sons, and one does that, right? One chooses the way of duty and <laughs> modest living, and the other, he is disobedient and flagrant in his hedonism. But at the end of the day, both of them lie separated from their family. Both of them are equally cut off. And in fact, if there's any difference between these two sons, it's that the younger one knows that he is cut off and the older one doesn't. And look which one is able to enter the party and which one is still not sure if he should go in. The danger isn't sinning, this parable tells us. The danger is when we pretend that we don't sin. It changes the way that we're in the world. It changes how we conceive of our lives because our job is no longer to just try to avoid sin. Our lives are not an Olympic Games of not sinning where we try to get this through this life unstained, hoping that we can outperform everyone else, trying to earn ourselves a ticket to that party. That's not how the parable tells us that we get in. It's not by trying to prove that we deserve to be there. No. The only way into that party is by knowing ourselves as dead and being pronounced alive again.
It's by saying that the paths of separation we have forged, that it take us away from love, away from one another, away from a life that is greater than our own individual whims, that those are all dead ends, that they cut us off from true life. The way into the party is by being open and honest, that each of us is frail and confused that each of us have used God's good gifts to tear apart rather than to connect. So that's the dying part. And the rest, that's not up to us. That's God's job. We struggle against sin, death, and the devil in Lent, but it is God who ultimately does the heavy lifting. We do the dying but it is God who does the raising. God knows that we live in a world full of sin, and so God makes salvation something not that we do, but something that God does for us. And we see this in the parable. The younger son doesn't reach the house on his own. He doesn't even reach the house before the father's compassion already goes out. He can't complete his journey of repentance for the embrace of forgiveness has stopped him on his way. He can't finish his rehearsed speech because he is interrupted by words of grace. Words that raised him from the grave of living for himself and the captivity of his own sin into the land of living with and for others. And so it is for us. God raises each of us up to in this life and in the life to come. God is the bringer of salvation. And can I tell you how God does it? God knows that sin takes the good things that God gives us, things that are meant to connect us together, and uses it as weapons to tear us apart. That's what we do. God works in the opposite way. God takes a weapon of separation, the cross of Jesus Christ, and God turns that into the very thing that unites us and makes us one. If there is no place that sin isn't present, and how much more true is that of God and God's presence? For if God can be on, can be present on the cross, turning that foul object into a symbol of hope and joy, then surely, surely God is present in all things with you, making this whole creation into a party making a banquet, a feast of life that has no end. Amen.